0: Section forty two of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter forty seven the death of lord palmerston part two nothing is more rash than to attempt to convey in cold words an idea of the effect which a happy phrase from lord palmerston could sometimes produce upon a hesitating audience And how it could throw ridicule upon a very serious case. Let us, however, make one experiment. Mr. Disraeli had once made a long and heavy attack on the ministry, opened quite a battery of argument and sarcasm against them for something they had done or had left undone. Toward the close of his speech, he observed that it was no part of his duty to suggest to the ministry the exact course they ought to pursue. He would abstain from endeavouring to influence the house by offering any opinion of his own on that subject. Lord Palmerston began his reply by seizing on this harmless bit of formality. The right honourable gentleman, he said, has declared that he abstained from endeavouring to influence the house by any advice of his own. Well, Mr. Speaker, I think that is indeed patriotic. The manner in which Palmerston spoke the words, the peculiar pause before he found the exact epithet with which to commend mr disraeli's conduct the twinkle of the eye the tone of the voice all made this ironical commendation more effective than the finest piece of satire would have been just then lord palmerston managed to put it as if mr disraeli conscious of the impossibility of his having any really sound advice to offer had, out of combined modesty and love of country, deliberately abstained from offering an opinion that might perhaps have misled the ignorant. The effect of Mr. Disraeli's elaborate attack was completely spoilt. The house was no longer in a mood to consider it seriously. This, it may be said, was almost in the nature of a practical joke. Not a few of Palmerston's clever instantaneous effects partook to a certain extent of the nature of a good-humoured practical joke but palmerston only had recourse to these oratorical artifices when he was sure that the temper of the house and the condition of the debate would make them serve his momentary purpose it was hardly better than a mere joke when palmerston charged with having acted unfairly in china by first favouring the great rebellion and then indirectly helping the Chinese government to put it down, blandly asked what could be more impartial conduct than to help the rebels first and the government after. It was a mere joke to declare that a member who had argued against Palmerston's scheme of fortifications had himself admitted the necessity of such a plan by saying that he had taken care to fortify himself with facts in order to debate the question these were not however the purely frivolous jests that when thus told they may seem to be they had all of them the distinct purpose of convincing the house that lord palmerston thought nothing of the arguments urged against him that they did not call for any serious consideration that a careless jest was the only way in which it would be worth his while to answer them it is certain that not only was the opponent not only were other possible opponents disconcerted by this way of dealing with the question, but that many listeners became convinced by it that there could be nothing in the case which Lord Palmerston treated with such easy levity. They had all and more than all the effect of Pitt's throwing down his pen and ceasing to take notes during Erskine's speech, or O'Connell's smile and amused shake of the head at the earnestness of an ambitious young speaker who thought he was making a damaging case against him and compelling a formidable and elaborate reply. The jests of Lord Palmerston always had a purpose in them, and were better adapted to the occasion and the moment than the repartees of the best debater in the house. At one time, indeed, he flung his jests and personalities about in somewhat too reckless a fashion, and he made many enemies. But of late years, Whether from growing discretion or kindly feeling, he seldom indulged in any pleasantries that could wound or offend. During his last Parliament, he represented to the full the average head and heart of a House of Commons singularly devoid of high ambition or steady purpose, a House peculiarly intolerant of eccentricity, especially if it were that of genius, impatient of having its feelings long strained in any one direction delighting only in ephemeral interests and excitements, hostile to anything which drew heavily on the energy or the intelligence. Such a house naturally acknowledged a heavy debt of gratitude to the statesmen who never either puzzled or bored them. Men who distrusted Mr. Disraeli's antitheses and were frightened by Mr. Gladstone's earnestness, found as much relief in the easy, pleasant, straightforward talk of Lord Palmerston as a schoolboy finds in a game of marbles after a problem or a sermon. We have not now to pronounce upon Lord Palmerston's long career. Much of this history of our own times is necessarily the history of the life and administration of a statesman who entered Parliament shortly after Austerlitz. We have commented so far as comment seemed necessary on each passage of his policy as it came under our notice his greatest praise with englishmen must be that he loved england with a sincere love that never abated he had no predilection no prejudice that did not give way where the welfare of england was concerned he ought to have gone one step higher in the path of public duty he ought to have loved justice and right even more than he loved england he ought to have felt more tranquilly convinced that the cause of justice and of right must be the best thing which an english minister could advance even for england's sake in the end lord palmerston was not a statesman who took any lofty view of a minister's duties his statesmanship never stood on any high moral elevation he sometimes did things in the cause of england which we may well believe he would not have done for any consideration in any cause of his own his policy was necessarily shifting uncertain and inconsistent for he moulded it always on the supposed interests of england as they showed themselves to his eyes at the time his sympathies with liberty were capricious guides sympathies with liberty must be so always where there is no clear principle defining objects and guiding conduct lord palmerston was not prevented by his liberal sympathies from sustaining the policy of the coup d'etat nor did his hatred of slavery one of his few strong and genuine emotions apart from english interests inspire him with any repugnance to the cause of the southern slaveholders but it cannot be doubted that his very defects were a main cause of his popularity and his success he was able always with a good conscience to assure the English people that they were the greatest and the best, the only good and great people in the world, because he had long taught himself to believe this and had come to believe it. He was always popular because his speeches invariably conveyed this impression to the English crowd whom he addressed in or out of Parliament. Other public men spoke for the most part to tell English people of something they ought to do which they were not doing, something which they had done and ought not to have done. It is not in the nature of things that such men should be as popular as those who told England that whatever she did must be right. Nor did Palmerston lay on his praise with coarse and palpable artifice. He had no artifice in the matter. He believed what he said, and his very sincerity made it the more captivating and the more dangerous. A phrase sprang up in Palmerston's days which was employed to stigmatize certain political conduct beyond all ordinary reproach. It was meant to stamp such conduct as outside the pale of reasonable argument or patriotic consideration. That was the word un-English. It was enough with certain classes to say that anything was un-English in order to put it utterly out of court no matter to what principles higher more universal and more abiding than those that are merely english it might happen to appeal the one word of condemnation was held to be enough for it some of the noblest and the wisest men of our day were denounced as un-english a stranger might have asked in wonder at one time whether it was un-english to be just to be merciful to have consideration for the claims and the rights of others to admit that there was any higher object in a nation's life than a diplomatic success all that would have made a man odious and insufferable in private life was apparently held up as belonging to the virtues of the english nation rude self-assertion blunt disregard for the feelings and the claims of others a self-sufficiency which would regard all earth's interests as made for england's special use alone the yet more outrageous form of egotism, which would fancy that the moral code, as it applies to others, does not apply to us. All this seemed to be considered the becoming national characteristic of the English people. It would be almost superfluous to say that this did not show its worst in Lord Palmerston himself. As in art, so in politics we never see how bad some peculiar defect is until we see it in the imitators of a great man's style a school of palmerston's had it been powerful and lasting would have made england a nuisance to other nations certainly a statesman's first business is to take care of the interests of his own country his duty is to prefer her interests to those of any other country in our rough and ready human system he is often compelled to support her in a policy the principle of which he did not cordially approve in the first instance. He must do his best to bring her with honor out of a war, even though he would not himself have made or sanctioned the war if the decision had been in his power. He cannot break sharply away from the traditions of his country. Mr. Disraeli often succeeded in throwing a certain amount of disrepute on some of his opponents by calling them the advocates of cosmopolitanism. If the word had any meaning, it meant, we presume, that the advocates of cosmopolitanism were men who had no particular prejudices in favor of their country's interests, and were as ready to take an enemy's side of a question as that of their own people. If there were such politicians, and we have never heard of any since the execution of Anarchisus clutes, we could not wonder that their countrymen should dislike them, and draw back from putting any trust in them at a critical moment they might be held to resemble some of the pragmatical sentimentalists who at one time used to argue that the ties of family are of no account to the truly wise and just and that a good man should love all his neighbours as well as he loved his wife and children such people are hopeless in practical affairs taking no account of the very springs of human motive They are sure to go wrong in everything they try to do or to estimate. An English minister must be an English minister, first of all, but he will never be a great minister if he does not, in all his policy, recognize the truth that there are considerations of higher account for him, and for England too, than England's immediate interests. If he deliberately or heedlessly allows England to do wrong, he will prove an evil counsellor for her. He will do her harm that may be estimated some day, even by the most practical and arithmetical calculation. There is a great truth in the fine lines of the cavalier poet, which remind his mistress that he could not love her so much, loved he not honour more. It is a truth that applies to the statesman as well as to the lover, no man can truly serve his country to the best of his power who has not in his mind all the time a service still higher than that of his country in many instances lord palmerston allowed england to do things which if a nation had an individual conscience he and every one else would say were wrong it has to be remembered too that what is called england's interest comes to be defined according to the minister's personal interpretation of its meaning the minister who sets the interest of his country above the moral law is necessarily obliged to decide according to his own judgment at the moment what the interests of his country are and so it is not even the state which is above the moral law but only the statesman we have no hesitation in saying that lord palmerston's statesmanship on the whole lowered the moral tone of English politics for a time. This consideration alone, if there were nothing else, forbids us to regard him as a statesman whose deeds were equal to his opportunities and to his genius. To serve the purpose of the hour was his policy, to succeed in serving it was his triumph. It is not thus that a great fame is built up. Unless, indeed, where the genius of the man is like that of some Caesar or Napoleon, which can convert its very ruins into monumental records. Lord Palmerston is hardly to be called a great man. Perhaps he may be called a great man of the time. End of the third volume. End of section 43. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D., in Encino, California, February 2020 end of a history of our own times from the accession of queen victoria to the general election of eighteen eighty volume three by justin mccarthy